There's all shapes and sizes of how we age and we should just enjoy aging and let everybody age the way they want. These people that say, oh, if you're over 40, you can't wear a miniskirt or you can't do this or you can't do that. Who made them the fashion police? If you feel good in it and you feel you look good and you, it makes you happy, then wear what you want. Hello there. Welcome to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that showcases the lives of women who've achieved amazing things in their careers, some who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who've just had a really interesting life. I'm your host, Naomi Meller, founder of the Skylark Collective and the International Women's Podcast Awards. And each week, I'll be sitting down with one woman to hear about the ceilings they've smashed through in their lives. The glass ceiling isn't all about corporate boardrooms, international skyscrapers and towering stilettos. Although don't get me wrong, I love a good high heel. There are women breaking down barriers everywhere, shattering stereotypes and forging their own unique and wonderful career paths. We're here to share their stories with you, to let you know how they got where they are and how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. We're an independent podcast, so if you'd like to support us, please follow, rate and review wherever you listen. Everyone asks you to do this, I know, but it really does make a difference and we'd love it if you could. My guest on the podcast today is Siobhan Daniels. Siobhan grew up in a care home as one of eight children amongst the elderly people that her family looked after. She has subsequently had an incredibly varied and colourful life, first working as a nurse in the NHS before joining the BBC as a trainee in broadcast journalism while single-handedly raising her daughter. Siobhan spent 30 years as a presenter, reporter and producer at the BBC before selling and giving away everything she owned and setting off on a new round of adventures in her camper van. She's now a freelance broadcaster and journalist and a pro-age campaigner. Since the age of 50, she's run two marathons and is currently writing a book. Siobhan is a huge advocate of supporting women through the menopause in the workplace and talks about all this and more in this chat. She's a total delight and great fun and I loved talking to her. She is a real positive role model for women in their 60s and she is just a fantastic person. Siobhan talked to me super openly about parenting her daughter as a single mother and about the difficult relationship she had with her own father. As a trigger warning, some of you may find one or two references upsetting. We normally start at the beginning on this podcast and I read somewhere else that you were brought up as one of eight children. Can you tell me a little bit about your early life? I was like, wow, that's a lot of kids. Yeah, it is wow, I tell you, but it was fun. It was good fun. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm one of eight children. There's four boys and four girls. Um, and I was born in Leeds and my parents ran an old people's home. So we lived in this massive house where there were 10 old ladies and 10 of us with our parents. Um, and it was there was a lot of fun. Unfortunately, my father was quite a strict disciplinarian. So he used to sort of hit us a lot and lock us in cellars. So there's a sort of a dark side to to my life. But there was also a happy side with my brothers and sisters um, as well. Um, but that that left me with a legacy of sort of feeling a bit scared and insecure and things. So that's that's what's prompted me and pushed me for my life's journey to face my fears and and still move forward. And that living in that nursing home and kind of experiencing uh, care, I suppose, from a, from a very early age. How much did that shape what you then went on to do with your career as a nurse? 
Oh, very much so. It, it shaped me because my, my father was a nurse, my mother was a nurse, my sister Helen was a nurse, and my sister Sheila was a nurse. So um, it was just something really that we I progressed into. And I absolutely loved it. Um, I started nursing in August 77 at St. James's Hospital in Leeds. Um, and I loved that I did nursing for nine years. And I loved the period I did nursing. Uh, we worked hard and we played hard. And we had some amazing um, parties in the nursing home. <laughs> I've got lots of happy memories of that. And I've got some dear friends who I've remained friends with to this day that I met on my very first day of nursing. Um, but nine years of nursing was great. I really enjoyed it. And I did. I worked in intensive care. I was a scrub nurse in operating theatres. I did a variety of roles. But when I left, I was ready to leave nursing. And how, and how did nursing change over that time, Siobhan? Did you feel that it was a different beast when you left it than when you began or how did that kind of progress? Yeah, very much so. And that was one of my motivating factors to leave because it was changing. It wasn't what I um, started. When I first started, you'd do all the little things. You'd clean the false teeth of the patient. You'd clean the glasses. You just, there was the caring, the real caring side as well as, as um, um I don't know, as well as the academic side. And then all of a sudden they started bringing it in as um, what they call the nursing process. It was an American idea came over and you had to fill in forms and saying what you were going to do, why you were going to do it, how you were going to do it and what was the conclusion of having done it on the patient. But this meant that a lot of the, the younger nurses were just spending hours sitting at the the, the nurse's station writing on bits of paper and then you'd walk over to the, the patients and they'd be sat there and they hadn't had a drink of water for half an hour they hadn't done something so there was this constant battle of trying to get these girls to nurse but then their nursing tutors were wanting them to have filled in all these bits of paper and I, I just became very disillusioned with it really um, so I left to become a pharmaceutical rep I went uh, to the other side <laughs> and I was a pharmaceutical rep for a year selling um slow release morphine to hospices that the company I worked for had a patent for morphine to be released slowly into the blood system for pain relief so I worked for them for a year which was a big change from nursing. Mm. We'll come back to that in a second I was just going to pick up on some of the skills that you developed firstly living in the care home and then secondly as as the nurse what do you think are the kind of key things that you have taken away from those two areas in your earlier life that have proven to be the most useful, I guess, because I, what, what I was driving at is that often when you're in a very um, vocational career, such as a nurse, it can be sort of difficult to get out of that a bit, you know, like often people will be like, oh, you've got a brilliant job, you do such important work, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think sometimes people can be a little bit hemmed in by their own um vision of of what they can do you know oh I'm just a nurse or that's it you know that's I'm, I'm kind of in that lane as it were I know exactly what you're getting at because it is true and I think do you know what I've realized as I got to the end of my career in the media um I've I'm always a carer and I've been hurt a lot in my life but in situations in work and in life because people aren't kind to one another and I, I find I what I took from nursing was the, the feeling of kindness 
just wanting people to be kind. And I can't get, I can't wrap my head around when people aren't kind. I feel quite emotional now just sort of talking about that subject because I despair of human nature sometimes. How, yeah, I know you have to be competitive in the workplace, but the, the level of competitiveness and the level that people can just disregard human lives, you know, when you get older, you just marginalized in society and in life, which I, I will talk about later. But I, I just, felt that my my nursing side never really left me but it was it wasn't really a strength to begin with it was a weakness because I didn't fight my corner the way it probably I should have done uh, because I just couldn't believe what was happening when it was happening you know when people were being so mean-spirited and it never ceases to shock me how people treat particularly medical staff in hospitals now you know and you just think bloody hell these people are looking after you yeah. <laughs> how can you be so disrespectful and and in some cases so aggressive abusive violent you know whatever it is and gosh it, I, I completely agree I couldn't you know what you're saying there just really rings true that the sort of depths of human nature never cease to amaze you do they um so you said you went to work for a pharmaceutical company quite a different turn um entering the corporate world from the NHS um how did you find that jump and what was it that made you dive into sales as a kind of step away from nursing in the first instance I, I think being disillusioned like I said with with the way nursing was going but also one of my friends had gone into pharmaceutical wrecking and she just seemed to be having a ball they gave her a car <laughs> with a great salary and she had a credit card and and I was lucky because the company I got the patch that I got given was where I'd been a student nurse so a lot of the doctors had been student doctors so they were buddies so I'd go along and sort of say to them look you've just got to watch this video for 15 minutes and then we used to go off to dry ski slopes and and go for curries in Bradford and all sorts of things really and so it was it was fun for me it was hard work and but it was a product that was selling well anyhow because hospices were just being established and proper pain control was being put in place and people understood about morphine and releasing it in your blood and things so I was quite lucky the product I was selling was a market leader product so um, for a year I just had a great time worked hard played hard again and earned a fabulous salary um, but then I got pregnant with my daughter, which I say like it's a bad thing. It's a great thing. I love it a bit, but it sort of stopped the partying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does put a bit of a dampener on a job in sales in pharmacy schools. Um, having lots of people who listen to this podcast will know that my um, original career is as a vet and I have propped up the bar with several pharmacy school reps over the years. So you know um, so, yeah, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Um, there was one particular trip to France that was very memorable. Um, so <laughs> yes, very good fun. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a change. And was becoming a mother something that had kind of always been on your radar? And, and how had you had you planned that into your career? It was one of the things we discussed again on the podcast about motherhood and, and careers running hand in hand. Um, and I always find it interesting to discuss with people whether they had kind of thought in advance how motherhood would be woven into their career or whether it came as a bit of a surprise well this came as a bit of a surprise I can tell you <laughs> now I'd never been um maternal I'd never had those cravings to want to be a mother and to be honest when I first got pregnant I thought oh my goodness what am I going to do but I was 29 earning good money in a steady relationship and so I decided to go ahead with the pregnancy and that's one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life because my daughter is just amazing um 
so really I went into motherhood being quite scared, being daunted by it, thinking, oh my goodness, this is happening. It wasn't planned, but I'll, I'll deal with whatever happens. But the the love that I felt for my daughter, the, the emotion, the moment I saw her just transcended any fears. And from then on, really, I've just, I, I, I won't say I've been a good mum. I've been, um, my daughter, I once said to her about bringing her up and, and what kind of mother I'd been. And I said, you know, I, I think I've been all right. And she looked at me, she said, I'll give you till I was about nine. Because <laughs> she's like Safi from Ab Fab and she thinks I'm Eddie just going around the country in my motor home. <laughs> so we've, we've got an incredible relationship. But yeah, I sort of bundled through because... I split from her father when she was very young, when she was about three and a half, four, and I've been a single mum ever since. Um, and and so from that, really, um, I, I struggled being a single mother at, at first, but I think it's made her the woman that she is today. And it's made me the woman that I am, you know, because I've, I've struggled through things, but I've got through them and I've enjoyed motherhood. And you mentioned really quite casually in the first instance about your relationship with your father and the struggles you'd had as a child do you think that had a a big impact on your parenting style and how you parented your daughter as well if you're happy to talk about that I should say yes no I am happy to talk about it very much thank you and yes I I, think it has um impacted my um parenting and from when my daughter's been old enough to understand I've explained to her a lot of my insecurities and why I feel the way I am and why I behave the way I behave from the fears of my childhood um and I know when she was very young and I was tired and I was working in local radio and working long hours and trying to juggle being a single mum and everything, sometimes I would lose my temper with her. And um, thankfully, I never hit her. But I remember once really feeling like I could just lose it completely. Um, And I had to think to myself, this is what your father did to you. You mustn't ever go down that road. and so I, I managed to restrain myself from doing that. And I swore then I would never, ever hit her. But I, I've, I've had to be conscious of that in the back of my mind so that I could parent differently. But I've been aware that the genes are in me that I probably could have gone down that route had I, you know, I don't know, had I not controlled myself. So I'm pleased with the way that I parented. Um And I remember once when my daughter was, um, she was about nine or 10. And again, I was really frustrated and we'd moved down south and I was tired and everything. And she was just annoying me. And I went, come here. I just feel like I could punch you. I just said the words. And she stood there calmly and looked at me and she went, yeah, so I'm supposed to come over there so you can hit me so you feel better about yourself. And I thought, that's it in a nutshell. That's exactly. And I just started laughing and we both laugh about it from this day. And I've never really lost my temper with her since then because she has helped me become a better person, I think. Oh, she sounds fab, your daughter. She um, <laughs> she'll be probably a bit embarrassed and but also very pleased she's getting quite a lot of airtime on this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, that's amazing. And I, I just, I've always find it really interesting to talk to people about parenting you know there's lot this is not a parenting podcast clearly but um I think un- having the the self-awareness of your own emotions and the and the way that 
your own life has shaped the way that you feel and the way that you behave, I think is incredibly insightful. And clearly you you have that, Siobhan, which is amazing to hear. Um, so following on from, from pharmaceuticals, you, you then took a bit of a Let's call it a, a, a right turn, <laughs> maybe maybe a U-turn, perhaps, um, into the BBC. Now, tell me about that. How did that opportunity arise? And at what point did you realise that broadcasting could actually be a career for you? I'd always been interested in, in the news, in general news. So I'd followed it quite um, vociferously, you know, radio, television, newspapers, everything. I was always on top of the news. Um, and my daughter's father worked in television. So I then became around a lot of journalists, um, the good and the bad bits of journalism I, I was aware of then. But so when I was pregnant with my daughter, I taught myself to type and I did my typing exams. Um, and when she was born, um, the local radio station, BBC Radio Leeds, had an advertisement for just for a, a receptionist. So I applied for that and I did that Saturday mornings and Mondays and I was able to get someone to look at after Sammy. And then um, I heard the advertisement coming up for the BBC trainee reporter scheme, the local radio trainee reporter scheme. And um, my partner, unfortunately, had had a few flings and things. I could see the writing on the wall, basically, that I was going to be a single mother. So this was an opportunity for me to have a, a career change now. So I applied for the trainee reporter scheme. Seven and a half thousand people applied for 26 places and I managed to get one of those places. So I was really thrilled. Um, Not surprised, as you should be. That's an incredible achievement. I know, I know. I was pleased. And it was what I needed. And friends and family said, look, we'll support you. Um, it's going to be tough because Sammy was only about 18 months, I think, at that stage. Um, and so I did. I had a year of, of sort of having to go to radio station. I went to Radio Gloucestershire and Lincolnshire and Sheffield. So I was away from home and coming back. Um, and um, and then eventually her father and I split up and I became a single mum. And I worked at various radio stations around the country. Um, and Sammy was just on board from being such a young girl at all the adventures of where we moved to and the different jobs that I had. And we went up to North Yorkshire and I worked at Radio Cleveland and then I worked at Radio Humberside. I had my own radio programme there. Um, and then I moved down to Tunbridge Wells and worked in television. Mm. And the BBC traineeship still is very competitive and is something that a lot of people would, you know, really love to do. What sort of form did that take at the time, Siobhan? And, and you mentioned obviously moving around a lot. What were you actually doing? Because I kind of love to dive into like the real nitty gritties of careers. So as a trainee, what sort of training did you get and how much choice did you have in what you were doing? Um, you went down to London and they had basically um, a mock radio station called BBC Radio Grafton, but it was just a mock one in, in a place um, in London. And uh, you learned from the very beginning how to create radio programmes and how to broadcast for radio and how to read the news. Um, and uh, we'd run around London interviewing people and say it's for BBC Radio Grafton, but it's not really a radio station. It's not really going to be broadcast, but can we interview you? Um, and people were so obliging. It was fabulous. Um, and it was a, a very, very steep learning curve for me because obviously, you know, coming from nursing, going to that, I'd done nothing like that. So I, I 
don't think I was top of the class to begin with. Um, and there was some, I was the eldest person in the class. There were a lot of them were just in there straight out of university, really. Um, but they were a great bunch and, and they helped me as well, I think. And juggling being a single mum was hard because on a Friday, you know, jumping on trains, hot trains from London, going back up to Leeds and then getting up at ridiculous o'clock on the Monday to catch the earliest train to get back down to London. Um, but they also, so when we did that, we learned how to put radio programs, but we learned how to do shorthand, T-line shorthand, and we had to do exams in law, um, advanced law, because you need to know your libel and your contempt of court and all sorts of things for, for reporting court cases. Um, and then, so we had exams in that, and we also had exams in local government to know the structure of local government and laws and things like that, and how to find a news story from all those boring local um, government documents and press releases that they'd send out. Yeah, so we did local government, studied that, and we did law, and we did um, shorthand, and then put together programmes. Then at that time, they sent you to three attachments you had to go. So I had Radio Gloucestershire, Radio Lincolnshire, and Radio Sheffield were my three attachments. And in those days, they thought the further away they sent you, the better it would be for your training, because then you'd be um, you'd have to learn to how to find news in a new patch and get to know the locals and look on the, the notice boards and look in the free newspapers and things. But in my day, it was hard because I spent a lot of time away from Sammy. Um, and that was hard. Um, I did feel very, very stressed at the time, but it was worth all the stress because um, I loved working at the BBC. And you were there for 30 years in the end. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You get less for murder. <laughs> And, and I do, I'm always amazed how much loyalty the BBC really does generate. I mean, a lot of its employees have been there for a really long time. And I think, you know, there would be some critics of the BBC around in, in the UK, but a lot of people have a real fondness for it. Um, did you find there was good career progression there? Like you obviously moved on up over the period, over the time. Oh, she's shaking her head at me. Uh, Go on, let's, let's a, dig into this. Go no, it's, it's, I don't want to bite the hand that fed me. And I had a fabulous time at the BBC um, and I worked in local radio for 10 years and like I say I was lucky enough to have my own programme and broadcast news and you know when John McCarthy was released from captivity when he'd been a hostage I was broadcast that on radio you know to the county of Lincolnshire for the first time and uh, you know important news stories I've been involved with and I've interviewed Tony Blair and Virginia Bottomley when she was and Douglas Hurd you know lots of, of leading politicians so I've had a, a, a great time and I've met some amazing friends but I don't think um, oh, I've got to choose my words carefully here. I don't think necessarily career progression happens for everybody in a just way within the BBC, but I think that's often within the media. Uh, how you look, who you know, all sorts of those influences come into it. Um, so, and I think when women are going through the menopause and ageism in the workplace is, is a big problem still with the BBC and something that I'm very passionate about to, to highlight that it needs to change. They are trying to change. They are trying to put policies in place. Yes, and in the BBC, I must stress, they are doing that. They are addressing the problems, but, but we can't say the problem's not there. The problem is there, but they are trying to do their bit to rectify it. Mm. But what I was going to say was actually ageism is often left out of the isms when we talk about, <sighs> you know, and actually we talk about a lot of isms in employment these days, but actually 
I'm interested to see what your take is on that because I th- really think that ageism is ageism is one that is is not actually that commonly talked about, and particularly ageism for women and the aspects of the menopause and this kind of invisibility that happens when you get into your fifties and certainly into your sixties. Well, I think firstly, ageism ha- can happen at any age. There's, you know, for the younger people in the newsroom, there can be ageist attitudes towards, well, what do they know? So it's, it, you know, I think that needs highlighting as well. Um, but to your your point was it, it's not spoken about enough. And I agree it's not spoken about enough because I think people are fearful. I think the younger people see the older people talking or maybe complaining or being marginalized and being treated in an ageist manner and they sort of bow their heads and try not to acknowledge that it's happening because they fear it might impact on their career and so they're complicit with the kind of behavior that happens because they don't really know what to do um which is why when I'm talking about ageism now I I want to include young and older women and say to the younger women Please be aware of of what's happening. Please be aware of these ageist attitudes. Start now to have the discussions when you're in your 30s and 40s, because one day you'll be in your 50s and your 60s and it will impact. And now you can't get your pensions till you're virtually in your 70s. So it's not like, in you know, a few years ago, many women would leave the workforce at 50 and 55 because they knew they could get their pensions. Um, whereas now the pension aid is getting further and further away. We've got to treat people properly because they've got another 20 years of a career from when they start being badly marginalised and, and ageism comes into play. So I think it's very important to start the discussion young for them to help change the legislation and the policies and p- policies in place so those difficult discussions can be had with your bosses that I'm feeling that I'm being treated treated in an ageist manner. I'm not getting the, the proper roles and respects that I deserve. Um, and I also um, feel I'm going through the menopause so I, I I can't contest it the way that probably I would. I feel quite emotional. I'm not sleeping. Can I change my work pattern? All this kind of thing needs to come into play with both the older and the younger people having the discussion. And it's not just women. It is men as well in the workforce. There's a lot of people over 55 being forced out of the workplace early because of ageist attitudes and they're being forced into a life of of not poverty but but financial hardship because they can't get their pensions for a long time now that's not acceptable and that is happening widespread in society we do need to do something to change that and that's why it's important we start talking about ageism just as a general subject and for those people who for whom this subject might be a bit new what from your own experience and from those people you've spoken to, how how commonly is, is ageism manifested in the workplace, Siobhan? I think it's manifested very commonly in all walks of life. When my daughter went to university... Um, I'm just to backtrack a little bit. I went, I, I, I thought, oh, I'm going to be on my own. I was 49, nearly 50. I took a gap year from the BBC, packed a rucksack and went off around the world on my own. God, and I love, love this. <laughs> And I mixed with people of all ages and that and, and from all walks of life. And I had the time to really sit down and talk in hostels and campfires and on bus trips and things. And I learned then 
that there's ageism prevalent in all walks of life. And, and that was when I first started the seed of thinking, I'm going to do something about this when I retire. I'm going to bang the drum as loud as I can. And I'm going to try and get people to listen and to talk about it and to try and change the narratives around ageing. We talk about anti-aging. We, uh, I, I'm not anti-aging. I like aging. My my sister died at 53. My birth, brother died at 53. My dad died at 50. I'm lucky I'm 62 now. I've lived a lot longer than them and I'm enjoying aging. It's a privilege to age. So I don't want any more anti-aging products, anti-aging shampoo and things. What's all that about? Well, I must say this is a podcast so people can't see you, but you look bloody fabulous. So... <laughs> Thank you very much. And this is what a 62-year-old woman looks like. You know, that's another thing. The images that are out there showing what older people look like and are like and behave like just make it all a negative thing. It also it makes people almost fearful of getting old. Yes, we all age in a different way. Some people are a bit more infirm or whatever, but it doesn't mean that you can't have adventures and you can't live life. You know, an adventure for somebody might be doing a six thousand piece jigsaw you know because they can't walk around but it's an adventure it's using your brain it's doing something it's a pleasure to be able to do that and it's an at an older age gosh I do get so so passionate when I start talking about it I can hardly get my words out but it is something that it's it shouldn't just be older people you know over 40 over 50 over 60 over 70 over 80 talking about it should be from school aging is a positive thing you know, we should look forward to aging. We should change the narratives. It should be things to enhance aging. We age the best way we can. We should be pro-aging and we should positively age. Definitely. But if you go into a school and you'd say to pupils the word old, tell me what you think of old. And the narrative, it's all negative and fearful and crumpled and forgetful and, you know, can't walk. I don't know. It's just wrinkly. It's as if wrinkles are a bad thing. I've earned my wrinkles. <laughs> I like to think of mine as laughter lines, personally. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But for years, people would say to me, oh, my goodness, you look good for your age. And I'd say, oh, thanks very much. And then I realised, actually, I'm contributing to this negative narrative because uh, I was seeing it sort of as something out of the ordinary. But actually, there's lots of women look like me at 62. There's lots of women look better uh, or, or you know, different, different, you know, and it's like we think we have to be thin to be beautiful. There's all shapes and sizes of how we age and we should just enjoy aging and let everybody age the way they want. These people that say, oh, if you're over 40, you can't wear a mini skirt, or you can't do this or you can't do that. Who made them the fashion police? If you feel good in it, and you feel you look good and you it makes you happy, then wear what you want. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, I couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. Um, and just going back to the menopause, um, that's again something that's not talked about that often. Um, there's been an increasing kind of narrative around menopause. I know Meg Matthews has been quite um, vocal about the menopause and the effect it's had on her and, and women in their 50s in particular. How did that affect you and what are the sort of experiences that you've kind of commonly come across and the misconceptions that people think about the menopause at work, do you think, Siobhan? Well, I had um, a a harsh experience of the menopause because I had a hysterectomy or I call it my hysterectomy because I've never been quite the same since I had it. Um, But I I suffered a lot with... um, uh, 
precancerous cells on my cervix and I had lots of cone biopsies and bits chopped off and things through the years. And eventually I had to have a hysterectomy when I was about 45 um, and they took my ovaries away. So I went in straight into a surgical menopause realizing then that actually I'd been going through the perimenopause, which I didn't know anything about in my forties, um, the anxiety and the tiredness and the, the hot flushes. I, I had been having somebody, it was overwhelming, a quite of an anxious feeling I used to get when I got them. And, um, and you're judged in the workplace at that time on your performance and you, you may be not performing quite as well, but it's not your fault. It's all your hormones going all over the place. And that's another thing. Workplaces need to be aware of that and adjust their expectations maybe a little bit when people are going through the menopause. So I went straight into the surgical menopause and tried all kinds of HRT and things like that. And struggled with it I really struggled with it and I completely lost myself I um, put on an awful lot of weight I became very depressed I was exhausted to my walk to work was 15 minutes but I used to get a taxi home at the end of a working day because I was so exhausted Um, I was very weepy my boss at the time was bullying me and I just didn't have the recourse to, to be able to defend myself. I'd go into the room for conversations and end up crying and feeling anxious. I didn't sleep then, so I was even more exhausted. And I, I just completely lost myself. Um, and it was when I went around the world um, with my rucksack and again finding myself, I was able to stop when I was overwhelmed in situations. I was able to stop. Um, and I tried to control my menopause with what I was eating, estrogen-based things. And I'd started HRT tablets, but they didn't they didn't suit me. So I thought I'll try the diet. That didn't work. And when I came back from traveling, I went on HRT um gel and it was like it transformed me. I was able to deal with situations. It made <laughs> it was, it was that kind of moment. Um, it took a few months for it to kick in, but I just felt my strength coming back. But then unfortunately, one of my sis- my elder sister died and I completely lost myself again, went back on the sofa, used all my energy just literally to go to work and then come home. And my daughter came in one day and she went, no, come on, mum, we're not doing this. This isn't you. Um, and she'd been chatting with a lot of her friends at school the same age, the teenagers, and they realised that this was menopausal. They, they sort of came up with a diagnosis and said my behaviour and we were starting to have arguments as well, which we, we didn't, didn't do because I was so just, I was lost. I called it my cotton wool head. It was a horrible time. So she said to me, we need to put, do something positive out of all this. Let's run a marathon. Bearing in mind, I put on two stone. I was lying on a settee. I went, let's not. <laughs> But of course, Sammy being Sammy, I was out there training and we ended up running the Brighton Marathon um, and we raised five and a half thousand pounds for cancer charities. And then two years later, she entered me for the London Marathon and, and I thought, oh, it's fine. No one ever gets a ballot place first. Entry. Oh, Muggins here gets one. <laughs> so we ended up running the London Marathon the year that Mo Farrow um, <clears throat> ran the marathon. And then so from that, 
the running, the marathon, the achieving something, the adrenaline flow and the HRT, I suddenly began to come out the other side and that black cloud, that dark place I kept going into lifted. And I found my strength also to go in and have those conversations with my boss saying, this has got to stop. You know, I'm not going to be treated like this and difficult conversations and just standing up for myself, really. And how long did that period last for altogether, Siobhan? About four years. Oh, Christ. Right. A long, long time. A long time. Um, the menopause just, some people sail through it. Some people, it's a good time. So I don't want to be all doom and gloom. But for an awful lot of women, it's a horrible time because you've still got to keep working. Um, you, you, you just lose yourself. You thought, my recall, I'd be sitting next to somebody in work that I'd worked with for 10 years. And I'd suddenly think, I can't remember their surname. I can't remember their surname. And uh, do you know, you think you're getting Alzheimer's or something and it's not, it's all menopausal. It's that, it changes you that much or it did for me. Um, and that I just, I want to make sure no other woman feels the way that I was made to feel in the workplace because it wasn't my fault how my thoughts and my body and everything, it was my hormones and I needed those sorting out. And even though I was going to the doctors, a lot of the male doctors just didn't get it. And they almost tried to tell me I had um, a fibromyalgia. And I knew it wasn't that. I didn't know what it was, but I, I was crying to the doctor saying, I'm too young to be feeling the way that I'm feeling. There's something not right. Um, and like I say, it was HRT gel then that, that started changing things. It's amazing, isn't it, actually, when you start digging into women's medicine quote unquote and I think Elizabeth Day talks about this really well from a fertility perspective I've read other people talking about it from a pregnancy perspective you're obviously on the the beating the drum about menopause that the understanding amongst the medical profession of individual women's struggles at various points in their life is poor in many cases and actually there's a lot to do about that I think Caroline Criado Perez writes about quite a lot about that in her latest book which is for anyone who hasn't read it is a fascinating read and I just feel that when you hear those experiences actually the community aspect of knowing that you're not alone going through that is one of the most important things for women because women do put up with some shit over their adult lives you know I think it was beginning to talk to friends and my sisters and people who were all talking about going to the doctors and being depressed and being put on antidepressants and things like this. And I was like, Do you know, it's not, it's menopause. Listen, we're all saying the same thing. We're all going through the same thing. And we shouldn't just be fobbed off with antidepressants. It's not that. We should not be going through life like this at a time when we, we, we need help. We, we were not getting it the way that we should get it from the medical services and from the people who are our bosses at work. And it needs to change. It's not acceptable. Now that you have retired and you are you have become a full time anti-ageism and um, pro-age campaigner, should we say. Um, the other thing we were going to chat about is the fact that for those people who don't know, Siobhan has sold everything and is currently living in a van, which you slightly alluded to when you um, said you were living in a field. Talk us through what le what led to that decision and how has that been? Because you've been in your van for a couple of years now, haven't you? Yeah, next month it's two years. Yeah. 
gosh, wow. I know I can't believe it myself, actually. And I'm still smiling and I'm happier than I've ever been. Um, when I was going around the world with my vet, so that's that sowed the seed of, do you know what? This is my kind of life, this freedom. This freedom to just be able to stop and connect with people and talk to people and learn from people and be able to also discuss with people my thoughts on ageism and menopause and how we should be aging. And then I kept telling everybody about it in work for about 10 years. I'd be talking about it saying, one day I'm going to get my motor home. I'm going to travel around. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do this and that. And then when it came near to my retirement, near to being 60, people started saying, you're going to do this, aren't you? You're really doing it. And I'm saying, yes, I am. So I decided I got rid of my flat, got rid of most of my possessions. I went to charity shops. I gave it away. I sold things. I've still got a certain amount of stuff in storage at one of my sister-in-laws, which is very kind of her to let me do that. Um, but I gave it away. My daughter used to walk past charity shops in Tunbridge Wells going, is, is, was that? Was that? <laughs> and I'm going, yep, it was mine. <laughs> But I enjoyed that to a certain extent, and because also at the same time as as deciding I wanted to to hit the road in a motorhome, I was very aware that people were spending their life, including me, working ridiculously long hours and to earn, to earn money to buy stuff that we don't really need, and we're filling our lives with all this stuff. And as a consequence, it meant we couldn't spend time with friends or family properly because we're just all so busy. You make an appointment to see a friend in three months' time, and actually by the time that weekend comes to see them, you're probably absolutely shattered from working, but you have to go through the motions because that's the only weekend that all of you had free. And so it's a false, it's a pretense kind of living. You can't really be live how you want to be so that was a, another motivating factor for me so I got rid of my flat got rid of my things and then went out looking for motorhomes and I hadn't got a clue what kind of motorhome or anything that I wanted and a good friend of mine Hamish came with me and we, we spent ages looking around motorhomes and when I walked in this one I just knew it's it's um, an auto trail tribute and it's a two birth and it's just got everything I need it's got um shower toilet oven grill microwave fridge freezer central heating it's just it's like a mini flat on wheels and I love it um and that's when I sort of left work I had a big party for my retirement um and uh for my um 60th and for my um hitting the road I've called it Siobhan Siobhan obviously being Siobhan so it's Siobhan Siobhan and so that's my tag and and work did me a lovely logo of a picture of a motorhome with my head on it which I use for my um website and my blog and things so in the last couple of years obviously we'll chat about Covid in a minute but where have you been and how do you decide where you're going to go well I kick-started my trip with um the, my friends that I said had been lifelong friends from nursing and um, one of them lives in Ireland and the other one in Leeds she's she happens to be my sister-in-law as well but we we made friends on the first day of nursing so I joined up with them and we headed up to um the Yorkshire Dales and we we did a few days in the Yorkshire Dales and then we went to the Lake District so we did a girly trip to just kickstart how to use the motorhome and we drank lots of gin and had loads of laughs and just sat playing cards every night it was really good fun and then they went off and it was like oh I'm on my own now so I did a lot of traveling in the Peak District and the Cotswolds and the Malvern Hills and all down Kent and Sussex 
Um, and I've been just been to Dorset for five weeks. I volunteered on a farm. I just saw a, a page on, on Facebook saying you can rock up, park up your motorhome for free and have electric and everything if you work two or three hours a day, five days on this farm. So I went and I had the best time with a lovely lady that owns the farm. Happy as Larry because it was so beautiful. Oh, and I've been up to Scotland. I went up to Scotland as well. Um, sorry, after the Yorkshire Dales. And that First of all, I went up to Scotland because I'd always said I wanted to stand on the side of a lock and just scream and get rid of all my emotions. And I went to an amazing lock um, in Aviemore called Lock Morlick. And I was able to park at the motorhome on the edge of it. And I stayed there for nine days. And I did that one night when the, the moon was out. And I walked to round to the far side of the lock and I just stood there and I just screamed and cried and my mum had died not long before I set off on this adventure so I was missing her and all the bullying and things at work I just got rid of it all there and it was really cathartic for me um, and then I went traveling around Scotland a bit I went to Loch Ness and Loch Lomond and then had to come back down for lockdown. So where did you spend your lockdown? Well, the first lockdown, I headed towards Lancaster because my sister was one of my sisters lived there. Um, and I found a fabulous guy who owned um, what they call a CL site, a certified location site, which only has five motorhomes. And there was another couple from New Zealand who just picked up their motorhome the day before and he let them stay. I know, poor things. They were going to do a trip around Europe and everything. Oh, God. So there was just me and this couple stuck in a field for four months through the first lockdown. Um, well, and at it least was it very, was nice weather. <laughs> I, well, yeah, but it was, to be fair, at the beginning, it was very scary. It was really scary because I didn't know where I belonged. I'd given everything up. I'd given up my security, and that's what I wanted. My adventure was to have no plan. My plan was to have no plan and go with the flow. And all of a sudden, I was stopped in my tracks, and the locals didn't like us being here. They thought he was still running the campsite, and they sent the police. But luckily, the police, because this was my home, and I was working as a freelance journalist from it, and um, I was there before lockdown, they let me stay there as long as I didn't move off. Um, but it was quite scary, and luckily, the landowner, he, they became dear friends, and they looked after us, and they used to come down, and we'd light bonfires at a distance and have glasses of wine and things. So, yeah, it was great, and I love that part of the country. So you are officially a freelance journalist, um, blogging, writing, and from your camper van. Where do you see yourself over the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, as you, you, know, as you do progress aging wise you know do you see yourself in your van for the longer term or how do you think things are going to pan out or do you just not even think about that do you know what I don't think about it and it stresses my family out no end they all keep saying but but you need to start thinking you need to stop thinking. and I I just I don't want to it makes me feel trapped I was only going to do this for a year but and I put it when I started off I put Siobhan Siobhan in brackets what's the worst that can happen well, I know they've had the worst the global pandemic. Obviously, well, no, they've had the worst storm since since um, in the last two years that they've ever had. They've had the worst rainfall last February that they've ever had since rainfall started being recorded, and I've had a pandemic. So it's like, and I've survived, and I'm still smiling, and I'm still going. So it's, I just want to keep going as long as I feel like this, 
Um, and and I'm getting the response from people that I'm getting. I'm my blog. You know, a lot of people are reading my blog. I've got I'm interacting with people on on Instagram under Shabon Shaboth and under Twitter. And I'm also writing a book called Ageless Fearless Women. You can do it too. Um, I've got to crack on with that though. I've been a bit slow recently. Um, I did really well at the beginning, and then when the pandemic came and the second one in the winter time, and I was stuck in a field for five months in Norfolk on my own, I sort of slowed down a little bit when I should have been writing. But I've, I struggled through that a little bit. It was hard on my own in that lockdown. Um, so yeah, I'm writing a book, writing my blog. I'm on BBC Radio every two months on BBC Radio Kent, where they go, "Where are you now, Siobhan? What are you doing with your motorhome?" madness um and I'm just doing lots of podcasts and writing for magazines um so I'm glad I'm getting the message out um you know it's important and I'm just going to age as positively as I can for as long as I can yeah it's brilliant um I will link to all of Siobhan's social handles and your website in the show notes so if anyone is interested in reading about her or what she's up to then everything will be there um all of the links to the articles that Siobhan has mentioned are on her website including the retirement rebellion in the telegraph which I did read in advance of this interview and it was brilliant (laughs) just finally is there anything I always throw the floor open to my guests at the end for a brief final word is there anything we haven't talked about that you think is personal or important with regard to careers for women Siobhan the only thing I would say to women I think we've covered everything and I'm really happy with with the talk I've really enjoyed it but the only thing I would say to women is don't lose yourself when you're going through the menopause when you're feeling insecure if you're having a bad time with the menopause try as much as you can to be positive you will come out the other side and listen to that little voice if you want to have an adventure just go for it because the feeling of facing that fear and overcoming and having that adventure is just amazing I was frightened when I hit the road in my motorhome I really was but now I'm just so proud of myself I'm so pleased that I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm loving it and I am inspiring other women I know there's already three women that I know for a fact have bought motorhomes as a result of following me um, through lockdowns on social media. So I just say, listen to your voice and have that adventure and age positively. Oh, brilliant. Well, Siobhan, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. I have loved this conversation and uh, I'm very, very grateful for your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Great. Perfect. Well, that's a wrap. Wonderful. Thank you. That's all for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please just share it wherever you can on your own social media. And if you found the podcast interesting or useful, then do please tell a friend as we are always keen for new listeners. If you can find it in your heart to rate and review the show on iTunes or give us a shout out on your own socials, then I would love you very much as it helps others to find us. We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Skylark Collective and our website is www.skylarkcollective.co.uk. See you next time.